0: Magnesium is integral for 600-plus biochemical processes in the human body, and yet most people are deficient. Common signs of magnesium deficiency include fatigue, muscle weakness, stunted growth, poor immune function, poor concentration in memory, hormonal imbalances, bone and teeth problems. Most people think grabbing a bottle of whatever cheap stuff on the shelf or at the top of Amazon will solve this. The common misconception is is that consuming more magnesium will automatically improve health and well-being. The truth is there are various forms of magnesium, each of which is essential for a variety of physiological processes. Most people are deficient in all forms of magnesium, while even those considered healthy typically only ingest one or two kinds. Consuming all seven of magnesium's primary forms is the key to accessing all of its health benefits. That's why we pack seven forms of 450 milligrams of elemental magnesium into each serving of Wild Mag Complex. One dose a day is all you need. Learn more and grab a bottle today at wildfoods.co. Use code GENIUS for 10% off
1: your order.
0: Um, My guest today is Daniel Shuloff. He's the CEO of what's called Keto Natural Pet Foods. So we're going to talk about the latest veterinary nutrition studies about carbohydrates and keto diets and what they mean for our pets. So, Daniel, thanks for coming.
2: Uh, It's my pleasure, Richard. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, sure. If you would, please tell me a bit about your background and then how you got to be the CEO of uh, this company. You know, were you the founder and CEO. So let's go through that background.
2: Yeah. So that's what I was going to say is that, yeah, a good way to become a CEO in my experience is to found the company yourself. And so that that is my title and background. I came make, to be in the dog food industry through a pretty convoluted path that hardly seemed clear at the time, but I guess in hindsight kind of makes some degree of sense which is that I used to be a practicing intellectual property attorney. I used to litigate lawsuits for big companies. I was living in the city of Atlanta. And the way that the story makes sense to me with the benefit of hindsight is is kind of how I'll tell it. But I, I got, when I was doing that work and in my 20s and like kind of living a younger ur- urban professional lifestyle, I got my first dog, got this big Rottweiler, and he was the man. He's since passed on, which I suppose I'm dating myself uh, by saying. But he changed my life. It became I became very interested in him, and I became very invested in his health and well being. And over the course of doing that, I basically like came to learn that I didn't like what I was being told from sources of information that were purporting to answer questions that I wanted to answer, like what a healthiest thing to feed this guy. And uh,
0: you know where people say, uh, "Oh, don't give dogs people food," and they seem to label everything except kibble. As uh, people food, but good.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's just, you're right. That is a common misconception that there's something inherently unhealthy about everything that's not kibble, but it's hardly, hardly the, the only one. And I can tell you that from the vantage of having been now in this industry for eight years and before that, this is basically where the, here's the like missing link in the story is I started, I was getting so many bad answers that I started like keeping notes. And then I started like writing it up and it was like, I'm going to maybe make this into something that's helpful for somebody else. And then like, I'd get further along and the ambition for what became a writing project started growing. And basically four years of that process led me to uh, quit my job, travel all around the country, like live in Yellowstone national park for a period of time with the wolf biologists at the Yellowstone wolf project. Go to all these different veterinary schools where rising veterinarians are being taught, and at the dog food factories and all these crazy places. And uh, you yeah,
0: did it all these places, that's really cool.
2: Yeah, it was before COVID, man, and you could do that. And it was like, yeah, some of that stuff. Like once I realized that I had a, a legit book project on my hands, it adds color to it. You know, it's like the truth of the matter is that you and I can have a you like can communicate all the information that communicated to one another through a conversation that we can have over the computer. But when I'm trying to write a chapter up about that information, it helps the reader to be there with me in you know, Yellowstone National Park and seeds and that kind of thing. And so partially serve that as a purpose. But I, I guess I just mean to underscore it was a big project and it's a big, uh, very large book. Yeah. By the time I was done with it, the, one of the main theses of the book is that carbohydrate is like a is worse for dogs and cats than the veterinary community and the lay public presently, typically tends to believe and um, for a cluster of different reasons. And so, yeah, once I wrote a book like that, it was easy to uh, found a dog food company that was designed to kind of serve people who thought that that's, who agree with that as an idea.
0: Yeah, my daughter is also really good with our dog's health and she's always giving them like hip and joint supplements, vitamins and toppers and all this other stuff. We've been through a lot of different, uh, you know, different types of food. Like We have like frozen meat pucks, from a local um, butcher here they had for a while and they I don't know they had all kinds of stuff one thing that she brought up maybe you can answer this is uh she said some of the kibbles that say they're grain free what they do is they put legumes in it instead and that seems to be worse at least for our dogs so, do you have any comments on them um, you know should you have any
2: any carbs in the food if possible and are legumes better or worse than let's say various
0: grains or not, What's your thoughts? Oh yeah.
2: I think what uh, your daughter is doing is raising kind of two separate issues and I can say a lot about both. So let me see if I can tackle them. So the first is, is there anything special about grain-free diets as compared to similarly macronutritionally composed diets that do contain grains, right? So like if I take grains out and I replace them with say potatoes or like she suggested legumes, and they end up having the exact same amount of protein, carbohydrate, and fat as the uh, grain-containing diet, is there anything inherently healthful about that? The answer to that question is no. There is no evidence that there is anything inherently unhealthful about grain-based carbohydrate as opposed to similarly digestible carbohydrates. from So the grain-free sector of the pet food industry arose as a kind of as a trick essentially it's like it sounds an awful lot and i think this is like an implication to your your daughter's question and your question too it sounds a lot like low carb right like if you hear grain free and if the, the there's a wolf on the bag and there's a ear of corn with a big x across it you would be forgiven for thinking that that is a relatively low carbohydrate product when in reality it is not, and that's because it is a kind of like arose as a thing to sort of serve, cater to that instinct that a lot of shoppers have, but would still allow the producer to make a food that's full of carbohydrate, which is very—they're highly incentivized to do. That's that's the nutshell story of grain-free pet food in America, circa 2018. The second thing, well, the second your daughter raises a second issue. That we could talk about on, you could have me on as a guest on your podcast for every show between now and the end of the calendar year, and we would not complete this subject because it's a wild, deep, and wide-ranging one. And the subject is FDA, the United States Food and Drug Administration's investigation into whether certain ingredients that are commonly used in grain-free diets are causing the heart disease dilated cardiomyopathy in dogs. That sounds like a big mouth. It's one of the rare, as somebody that like bores podcast toasts about dog food for a living, I can tell you that it is not always the most interesting subject for everybody. And that like what feels like big news to me often isn't for the rest of the world. But the FDA's investigation to grain-free diets and dilated cardiomyopathy is like the rare dog food issue that crossed over and be and it's sort of been boiling like bubbling along, is that how you say it? Since 2018. It was a very big news item covered in the New York Times and every other legit media outlet of of any quality at the time. And it's been going ongoing in a way since then. The short answer to your daughter's question from my perspective is that not only is there nothing to the investigation, like the there's no there's actually fraud. There is the FDA got duped, as it were, by a kind of small cluster of folks. And I speak from the authority of having been involved deeply, deeply. This issue, if it's too like in the weeds, we we could probably focus on stuff that's more broadly applicable here. But uh, I can also stay on this. if
0: Magnesium is integral for 600 plus biochemical processes in the human body. And yet, most people are deficient. Common signs of magnesium deficiency include fatigue, muscle weakness, stunted growth, poor immune function, poor concentration in memory, hormonal imbalances, bone and teeth problems. Most people think grabbing a bottle of whatever cheap stuff on the shelf or at the top of Amazon will solve this. The common misconception is that consuming more magnesium will automatically improve health and well-being. The truth is there are various forms of magnesium, each of which is essential for a variety of physiological processes. Most people are deficient in all forms of magnesium, while even those considered healthy typically only ingest one or two kinds. Consuming all seven of magnesium's primary forms is the key to accessing all of its health benefits. That's why we pack seven forms of 450 milligrams of elemental magnesium into each serving of Wild Mag Complex. One dose a day is all you need. Learn more and grab a bottle today at wildfoods.co. Use code GENIUS for 10% off your order. No, oh, it's fine. Um, You know, you, your company has the word keto in it. So tell me what you've seen in the research and what you think the alcohol diet is.
2: Yeah, so case for taking carbohydrates out of your dog and cat's diet has of several different like prongs. The mo- and some of them are like ironclad, rock solid argument, whereas others are to my eyes, very plausible. And so the eyes of lots of other folks, but you wouldn't describe them in that same kind of strong language. So the strongest case, the the number one reason that I think that I don't feed my dogs carbohydrate and that I don't think that conscientious pet owners ought to feed theirs is because carbohydrate more than other nutrients causes dogs to fat. And obesity is the number one health problem. To the extent there's such a thing as like veterinary public health, the veterinary public health community in the United States is in complete unanimous agreement that the obesity epidemic impact that's affecting dogs and cats in the United States, the single biggest health problem. The numbers are like, knock you over type numbers. More than half of the dogs and more than half of the cats in the country today are overweight or obese. So if you pick, I've not met your dog and I know nothing about it. And I don't say this with any kind of judgment in my voice, but I would bet if I had to bet, I would bet your dog is overweight or obese because the the numbers say that it's more likely that it is than it isn't, which is bad, but it's not as bad as... The second fact about obesity, which is that it's worse for a dog than a lifetime of smoking, is for a human being. It's been shown through, you know, basically researchers have followed litters of puppies over the entirety of their lives and looked at how long they live and what diseases they get if they are one type of body fatness and a fatter type of body fatness. And the fatter ones tend to die much earlier. They tend to get chronic diseases earlier. It's unquestionably horrible for their health sure is it my side i don't i don't know yeah yeah okay. uh, editor will splice this into the first uh, fair enough one. yeah knows about to
0: reply about uh talking about obesity in dogs and cats. All right, good.
2: Yeah, so do you hear me? Did I, did we go so far as for me to bet that your dog is overweight or obese, even though I've never met it before? No, uh,
0: you're starting to say uh,
2: about 50% of all. Of yeah, exactly. So that's the, the big, the take-home number on prevalence of overweight and obesity among dogs in the United States and cats is that more than 50% of them suffer. So, as I like to say, I've never met your dog before, and I don't mean to cast any kind of judgment on you by any stretch, but if I were a betting man, I would be betting that your dog is overweight or obese because the numbers say that it's more likely that it is than it isn't. The, the average dog, the next dog you're going to see on the street is overweight or obese and all like.
0: My, my daughter is like, don't feed them extra, you know? And, you know, like we have one dog that always cries for food and, and he knows that on the weak one. She gave me yeah. like this low calorie, and we call it pigeon food. When they, you know, after I get ready in the daytime, I come in the room and then they all follow me in there. We've got four of them and I throw these like tiny little, um, you know, edible, kibble things on the floor and they all eat it up like pigeons. We call it pigeon food, but you try to find like a very low calorie one. And I only give it to it once a day besides their meals because yeah, they were starting to gain weight and she was yelling at me.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's the, you're doing the right thing because the second fact about obesity among dogs is that it being moderately overweight, so not clinically, but like, you know, the average person would be like, that dog is probably fatter than not to be. Being that way is worse for a dog than a lifetime of smoking is for a person. So it's going to shorten that animal's lifespan on average by more than an entire lifetime of smoking tends to shorten a year. That's terrible. Maybe fifteen years to deal with. Yeah, that's the thing, man. That's the like emotional kind of core of my book is that it's this, it's a pretty underappreciated tragedy how messed up it is that you love these pets kind of like you love your children. You know, it's basically the same as. instincts and then maybe not to this. And every one of them is going to die before you do. It's like a pretty unfair situation. And yeah, every pet owner I, that I've ever met is invested in trying to keep their animal around as long as they can within their budget and their capability. And making sure that the animal is very lean throughout its life is just like unquestionably easiest and most impactful to you and your daughter, in my eyes, right path.
0: Oh, she's more on the right path to me. And I guess she whips me in the she shape and bugs me, says, don't, don't do this, don't do that. Okay yeah. okay.
2: yeah. I think it's a carbohydrate. The reason the carbohydrate is relevant to this story is that you literally cannot make a dog or a cat obese without giving it. I, there's not like, there's, that's not a condition. Despite the fact that 50% of the domestic dogs and domestic cats in the United States are overweight or obese, other canine species with whom they share, with whom dogs share a huge fraction of their mitochondrial DNA, don't experience any obesity, whether they're raised in captivity or whether they're raised in the wild. And those are the gray wolves that I talked to earlier when I described my experience in Yellowstone. You go talk to wolf biologists at the Yellowstone National Park and you ask them, like, you know, obesity, how what what does that look like? And they're like, you it's literally not a thing. There's just no case of it. And I was like, well, yeah, but I get it in the wild because they're, they're fighting to survive and it's nature, red in tooth and claw. And uh, they're like, it doesn't happen in captivity either. Like wolves are raised in captivity all the time and it's just, you just don't, you can't make them fat. And it's also the case that those animals are, unlike dogs, are unable to digest carbohydrates. So we all know that wolves eat, eat primarily meat, but a lot of folks don't appreciate the fact that they eat exclusively meat. That's it. That's the only thing they eat. 0.0% carbohydrate and, uh, never become obese. so it's one of the ways in which we, we can, we build up the scientific case that the fundamental cause of obesity in dogs and cats isn't just caloric imbalance because there are plenty of times where wolves eat more than their daily allocation of calorie, but carbohydrate intake is I, in my judgment is clearly the fundamental cause of obesity. And
0: what would be the ideal, uh, diet for a dog and a cat? Is it different? And what would
2: it be? Yeah, sure. So the scientific community has done a really nice job over the century. We've been keeping household pets for a long time. And over the years, understanding the nutritional requirements of dogs and cats is an area where the community has gotten much smarter and is in full consensus about 95% of the issues concerning uh, requirement and deficiency, if that makes sense. So like how much calcium ought a dog take in in order to prevent it from developing growth abnormality is an issue that like they've gotten extremely good at. And as a result, there are two different bodies that publish these consensus statements of, that are like basically charts of the amount of each individual vitamin and other micro you know, mineral micronutrient content that each animal ought to, each and cats ought to take in as a matter of weight. And they also highlight even like more than just macronutrients. They don't just say like the animal needs this much fat. They break it down into types of fat, omega-3s, omega-6s, different amino acids. And those profiles for dogs and cats are somewhat different. Like a cat, if you do not provide it any of the amino acid taurine, which is typically only found in meat and not in vegetable products, unlike some other types of amino acids, uh, the animal will develop cardiac disease. Basically, they need taurine in their diet in order to not develop that disease defi- uh, deficiency disease. Whereas dogs don't; they will make taurine out of, as long as they're getting enough of other amino acid. And so, the specifics of like what the it, like exactly what the micronutritional makeup of the diet ought to be it changes species to species. For my money, that being said, what I think the actionable, the like kind of best practice for a dog or cat owner in the United States is if your budget is no option, what I would feed is a all meat, zero carbohydrate, because all meat, raw diet that has been prepared by a commercial manufacturer and is what's called certified complete imbalance, which is a regulatory statement that basically means the regulators are confident that this has exactly the amount of micronutrients that's going to meet all these requirements. You do that, you'll get the you'll get the macro numbers right. You'll minimize carbohydrate, which is the like kind of for me is sort of the most important health issue. And you will break your bank, but that's that's the best option. Those the products are unfortunately are quite expensive. Is there any downside to feeding just meat? You know, I heard
0: floating around in some places. Oh, it makes dogs more aggressive if you give them raw meat. Is that BS
2: or would it be? Yeah, I've literally never even heard that. There's a so one common. Uh, one, of like, glaring kind of fundamental problem with the veterinary nutrition community and the reason that some of the issues that seem like very clear science to me aren't being kind of discussed in mainstream clinical uh, veterinary nutrition discourse is industry plays a huge, huge role. And I know that that's like easy to say about virtually any scientific discipline in the United States today in this era, but it's more it's exaggerated in the world of pet food. And it's like to the point, you know, they're just. Between the very small number of practicing clinical nutritionists, which is to say fewer than 100 board-certified veterinary nutritionists in the United States. There are 100,000 plus vets, but only 100, fewer than one, are board-certified nutritionists. And the mega size, kind of like the amount of funding that's available through industry as compared to other sources, it means that you have just like a a very, very heavily industry uh, subdomain of science and one of the things that one of the places that um they've made that industry has kind of built up common perceptions about pet food is in the domain of raw diets because raw diets uh, and my company doesn't make raw diets I kind of don't have like a, a dog in in this hunt a horse in this race but raw diets aren't something that the biggest pet food companies and so to keep folks away, to drive consumers away from those products. There was a push that pretty much took place in the like world of nutritional science, in the the world of scientific uh, like kind of peer-reviewed paper in the early 2000s, where this like cluster of industry-affiliated vets basically put out a bunch of papers that said, don't feed raw diets to your dog, not because it'll make the animal sick, but there's too great a risk that you're gonna make yourself sick by handling potentially contaminated beef. There's no evidence that gets sick, but there's such a significant risk that you yourself or somebody in your household is gonna get sick that you shouldn't do it. And
0: that's the heart well, of the no, argument. That's, don't worry, they'll tell you not to cook soon and not to grow food because you can yeah. get sick. You know, yeah, exactly. Trust to make this garbage food.
2: But it's like, I, I use that as an example, because I mean, if you're listening to this show, do this experiment. Go Next time you're in your veterinarian's office, say, what do you think about raw diets for my dog? Are they healthful? And if the answer is anything other than what I'm about to say, look me up in these show notes and give me a call and I will send you $100 cold cash because I'm that confident that this is exactly what your veterinarian will say. They will say, we do not recommend raw diets for dogs. And if you press them and you say, why don't you recommend raw diets for dogs? They will say, because there's no scientific benefit shown benefit and because their risk of dis- contamination issues is too sick. And it's like the your reaction, Richard, I heard you when I, to- when I just explained what these papers said, you know, oh my God, is like how you sounded. And that's everybody's reaction. It's an oh my God type of argument. It's absolutely, I mean, it's ridiculous, but it is completely, completely bought hook, line, and sinker by the entirety of the veterinary community. It's so pervasive within like what they're used to be taught during and after veterinary school that it's just like, it's complete, it's a matter of, you know, dogma,
0: scripture. What's very revealing is that you said there's only about 100, what, board certified veterinary nutritionists in a population of 100,000. Why is that so low? That's a range
2: eagle. Yeah, okay, so there's kind of two things, at least. One is that, like, dogs and cats, uh, I mean, this is, like, the most fundamental way to answer it, is, like, they don't advocate for themselves, right? Like, they don't... They're not a part of a voting constituency and like every lots of people care about them and will spend time, money about on animals that are not even theirs. Animal welfare groups like do good work. But because there's no like consistent drug beat of like self-advocacy, stuff still falls between the cracks kind of. And one of the places that there's tons and tons of public investment in the human world it's just not there in the doggy and kitty world is in scientific, is in funding for scientific. There is no equivalent to the National Institutes of Health in the dog and cat world. And so if you want to do research, you want to be a professional, you love clinical or you love veterinary nutrition. When you're in school, you become very interested in nutritional topics you want to do and you want to do it on the science side. You're going to work for a university and be a professor and a big part of your job is going to be publishing new studies. Well, you're going to have to get funding for those studies. And there is no other game in town. There is just industry. That's it. It doesn't, there's some sign, you know, you're talking about, I can make these kind of sweeping statements because you're talking about several dozen people here. We're not talking about tens of thousands of people. We're talking about tiny group. There's, there are some that are like, I'm better because I take it from this company, but there's no, as opposed to the biggest company. There is no alternative. You can't be a viable professional scientist doing veterinary nutrition work and not have money for it because there's just nothing else. So that's one thing Thing is just like basically one company has done an incredibly good job over a period of like 30 or 40 years of just dominating that they have from very methodically and very thoughtfully built up an obscene amount of influence within the veterinary community from long before they are practicing vets, like when they are still in vet school, all the way through to folks who out of school for 30 years, don't go to a big city, learn about new stuff outside of there. So it's, it is a wild place. Like it's, I don't know, it's something where you never run out of stuff to talk about. Like there's just so many mind-blowing types of like, you know, I mean, this here's, here's one that just like, I... In the interest of giving your listeners mind-blowing facts, there's one that I even, after you know, decade in this stuff, didn't even know I learned less than a week ago. There's a nonprofit organization that is funded 100% by a big pet food company. That big pet food company is called Hills Pet Nutrition. And Hills Pet Nutrition has is the one, the company I was referring to a minute ago when I said they've made obscene inroads in the veterinary community over a period of like 40 years. That's their brand. And that's like how they work is Mark. They are the sole exclusive funder of an organization called the Mark Morris Institute. Mark Morris was the founder of Hills Pet Nutrition. So you can get a sense of what the Mark Morris Institute is or like who it represents, I guess I would say. But what the organization claims to do is it's an educational organization. It's like vets if you need to learn about clinical nutrition stuff you come to us and we're going to teach and they do the things you'd expect like an organization like that to do they have online material that if you take need a continuing education credit you can go and watch their course and it's you know buy well, look like they're they're huge in the
0: education industry but the education serves them what
2: they put out yeah well yeah but it's the way they do it that's so like that's the jaw dropper because what they do is this: they don't just do like videos and little pamphlets, or even just textbooks. Even though the most popular textbook used in veterinary nutrition courses literally has a Hills logo on it, okay? Like even that, that's bad enough. They do full turnkey veterinary clinical veterinary nutrition programs for vet school. So if you, if, we're, if Richard and I want to start our own vet school, And there's only 33 in the United States. We're not talking about a lot. And say, we want to offer clinical nutrition to our students. We want to not just teach them about cardiac issues in dogs. We want to make sure they know about what health stuff is tied to feeding. What are we going to do? Well, we're going to have to hire a bunch of professors. That's going to cost money. We're going to have to uh, pay those professors to develop curricula. They're going to have to buy materials. Or you could just use the Mark Morris Institute because the Mark Morris Institute literally dropped the program right into your school. And they're working in 25 of 33 veterinary schools in the country right now. Professor, syllabus, curriculum, course materials, everything. And this is 100% funded by Hills Pet Nutrition. So I would challenge your listeners how they would feel if you learn that 80% of the medical schools in this country were teaching lung health, using a nonprofit organization that was like funded Morris. entirely yeah. by Philip Morris. Right. Think about that. And here's, oh yeah, th- let me add one more thing. It's free. So if you're, if you and I are starting a university and we're like, well, we'd want a veterinary nutrition program, but it's too expensive to do all that. Not only if you call up Mark Morris Institute, not only will they solve all the problems in one place, you do not have to pay. It is free. So think of how easy it is to adopt that type of methodology within your school. It's like you, too good to say no there's money for it because they're literally you can see from their annual tax filings they are 100 every single penny funded by private institution hills pet nutrition of colgate for profit so you it sounds like from the name
0: you've chosen to go the keto route instead of just you know uh carnivore route i guess i could say borrowing from like human diet names so why is that
2: well, for me, I'm a one-issue shopper, which is to say that I believe carbohydrates are the devil for my dogs, and so I want to feed them <laughs> as little as little carbohydrate as possible. And the, uh, the reason that I didn't, by the time I found a dog food, feed what I referred to earlier on your show as the gold standard for people that share that perspective, which is a raw, all-meat, commercially prepared, complete and balanced diet, is because my dogs nowadays, my brand of dog, are St. Bernard's. They are not just like they are really big. My dog, I have a dog named Wayne. He is uh, my one of my Saint Bernards just passed regrettably. My my dog Wayne is 160 pounds, he's a year and a half old, and he's like a, he's a small horse. He's huge. And raw diets for dogs are a calorie for calorie or like meal for meal are like five to six, you know eight times as expensive as fancy. So like if you have a really little dog, what kind of dogs do you got, daughter? Oh, a
0: big one is a black lab probably 100 pounds um we've got a australian shepherd he's like he's a big one yeah. he's like 75 pounds he's really much bigger than most nice. they've nice. seen we have a standard poodle she's like 60 pounds and then uh we got a little one he's like a mix of an australian shepherd and something else he looks like an anteater actually he's only like 30 pounds probably i think he'll get seven. to maybe fifty. yeah right. but he's really cool he's like chocolate lab colored and he's um uh, but again he's like part australian shepherd and something else but he's uh he just looks like an anteater to me I don't why.
2: <laughs> okay I've never seen an editor yeah. in the flesh, as far as I'm aware. But I sort of can see what you mean, like what you mm. must be describing. But I guess what I mean to say is, like, if you have a, say, a chihuahua or like 10 pound dog, you can, and you think carbohydrate is really, really bad, but it's possible, you can feed a all meat raw diet, no problem. It's going to cost you you know, five times more than kibble. But the difference for you be between 50 cents a day and 250. It's two extra bucks. But if you have, like you, four dogs, you add up the body weight, talking about 200 plus pounds of dog. It's similar to what I've got. And you're talking about 20 times that. So you're talking about the difference between you know, $15 a day and $75 a day. Like it becomes really, really, so it adds up. And so it's kind of a non-starter for a lot of people. And so we tried to make a company, we tried to make a product that's as priced to compete with kibble that is kibble. It's made in the same style, but without carbohydrates. It's very little, as little as we dietary. So, so are going to- a,
0: a little bit of a hybrid route with keto instead of just carnivore, if I can use that parlance. Is that is that why you've settled on that? It was the closest you could could come to ideal but still have a a kibble format
2: well i'm not sure no i would i wouldn't say that i think that like the keto carnivore distinction is sort of this like internet culture distinction if that makes sense like i'm not if i were to use the word carnivore on our bags i think that the vast majority of people that would see that wouldn't understand it as a reference to a human eating style that is all meat and no they would like kind of just assume it's a like Loose allusion to wolves generally. Uh, And I think that the, well, I'll tell you that the reason we use the expression keto, the reason like that's our main like uh, kind of calling card is because the regulatory regime that covers the sale of pet food in the US does a lot of very industry friendly things pertaining to hydrate because carbohydrates like the dirty little, and it's like one of the bad things it does is you don't have to tell the consumer how much carbohydrate is in there. So go look at the back of your bag of whatever dog food you're feeding and you will might be surprised to see, you won't see a carbohydrate number on there. And it's one of the reasons that you can effectively hide it. Or you can, a product, be expensive, can have the nicest packaging, can have a wolf on the bag, and it might very well be 50, it might be grain free. 50%. Another thing though that they do is they completely against the law to use the expression low carbohydrate in the doggy. And so for a brand that is trying to be, that is, that is what we are. That is our core product quality is low carbohydrate content. It's like saying it is illegal for you to, can you say a carbohydrate challenged? How about that? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. Well, I I leaned it basically keto at the time I founded the company. It was, it meant enough within the kind of like internet world and within the scientific community that people generally at that point could understand if you said keto oh you mean a diet that's restricted enough in carbohydrate that it's so little that your body's making keto. yeah like i get that's what you're, and so but it wasn't prohibited so we just slapped that on all the labeling and just said we're gonna make that the brand because it's a loophole basically and it's accurate so that's why keto is sort of the dominant way to describe now there have been other companies that have found been founded that kind of knocked us off and um they're are like copycat, you know what I mean? Like they're low-kibble. And uh, uh, they use the keto language too. It's become the way people refer to this because you can't can't say low-carb kibble. It's ridiculous.
0: So as not to ignore cats, how is the formulation different for cats? Like you said, they they need taurine. Um, it sounds like cats, I guess, maybe are less tolerant to the wrong diet.
2: Well, I mean, like the generalities regarding cat, like nutrition on the side are the ones I gave you before, like just the, the very same rule applies that I, the way I took articulated it before. for my money, the gold standard, if money is no option. And with cats, it's less of an option and it's less of an issue because they're all pretty small. As long as you've got a reasonable budget to devote to them, feed it a day all meat, complete and balanced raw commercial prepared diet. The complete imbalance does the like heavy lifting there in the difference between, because you're not going to, that's not to say you feed your dog and your cat exactly the same food. If it's complete and balanced for a cat, that means that the regulators know that the manufacturer included the right nutritional profile to make sure that things like taurine are included in correct levels. And then the, uh, the fact that the diet is all meat, zero carbohydrate does kind of the rest of the work. So, but my company does not make cat food at this point. So if you're asking no, me about sure. that specific and the reason why it might make sense to you, it's like, we're we're not an old company. We've been around for five years and we yeah, you gotta f- got to focus. Well, and it's like, yeah, focus, but it's also like there's an economic reality about the pet food world, which is that like, you know, your your dogs weigh 200 pounds collectively or more, right? Yeah. 20 cat owners I would have to win over as customer, be equivalent to. And so when you have really limited resources, you gotta go, uh, you gotta get the dog peed more stolen. Maybe you should go up to horses then. They're hundreds and hundreds of pounds. They're big, they're big. That's an interesting point. Alas, their yeah. digestive system's quite different than domestic dogs. And I think that I would have keeping a horse alive if I didn't feed it any carbohydrate. Um,
0: uh, you know, they have puppy food, they have senior diet, things like that, like under your feeding plan. Is any of that even necessary?
2: So... Puppies, the there is reasonable amount of evidence. So the complete and balanced designation, again, does a lot of heavy lifting there. Basically, there's a different nutritional profile that's a matter of consensus within the veterinary nutrition community about some nutrients dogs should take in at higher or lower quantities while they're still growing as a unique period. And the same applies to if a dog is gestating or uh, lactating, like, basically, like, a connection with pregnancy. They have their own nutritional profiles as well that are, like, unique. Beyond that, it's just those two areas, though. When you start talking about, like, special issues for seniors or even... I, this is amazing, but it's a thing. There's a brand where it just leans into, like, breed-specific. Like, they're like, this is the dogs and retriever, which is not... Well, they do it to make
0: money. I mean, like, when, I know that comes but- to mind... I mean, you know, actually, one one thing that might be good for you, I don't know if anyone talks about this, but like a post-spay or a post-neuter diet, that might be an interesting market angle for you. Because I don't know if anyone does that, And so many of these poor animals are getting spayed and neutered to like, I guess, six to 12 months. Maybe the uh, um,
2: a good angle get, for you. you know? Get people kind of early. I mean, yeah, I, the the thing is, though, is I'm just kind of like allergic to non-substantive marketing points you know what i mean no, like no, no, no. everything i i do like there's so much in the pet food industry that gives me an allergic reaction because it's like wooey and not real science or people are getting misled that like i i just have an allergic reaction to like talking about any like to selling us as anything other than the good things that it really does because there are real yeah. good things that it does for your dog's health and I don't want to oversell it and the uh, you know throw the baby out. Yeah, with it's
0: that. a trade-off. I understand ethically, as long as you're providing what you consider to be the best food, but you're applying, it's like chicken soup for the soul. You know, the chicken soup for the yeah. the three-headed, you know, ugly person's soul, and for every yeah. soul imaginable. So I see that they do that with dog food. You know, it may not be any better, but there's puppy formula, there's a senior, and there's hip and joint. So maybe, you know, as long as you're providing good food, that you might be open to that. Are you deceiving people? I don't know. But as long as you're giving them healthy stuff, if they otherwise wouldn't do it because they respond to that kind of marketing, you know, that's obviously an ethical decision that comes to mind, you know?
2: Yeah, it's one, it's a common way for as pet, so like I already talking, shifting now to talking about how the dynamics of like pet food startups tend to go. You know, I mentioned before that dogs always come before cats in pet food startup world They because yeah. the consumer's worth so much more. But then the, the common other ways that the lines expand, the like second way, once you've done your expansion, is life stage type stuff. And so it's like brands typically develop a puppy and a senior for for each of their main product lines. And puppy one, like I said, is defensible as it's distinct. Like there are some, there's like a specific little tiny subclass of puppies that our product is not complete and balanced for. It's like not a right fit for them until they're done growing. It's like very, very large dollars like mine basically grow super fast you know like quantitatively they grow a lot when they go through growing their bones are like you know growing fast enough you can like see it with the naked eye and so they special calcium restricted diets and so but like uh yeah that's common way to do it we keep going and keep on the train that we're like the tracks that our train is currently on someday that will certainly be a thing for us we're expanding to other life stages but at the time being you know it's like my dog's sunrise to sunset from the as early on as as I can until the last day they're with us eat just that one product or just that one brand so there's nothing I believe is a bad move about it what about
0: uh probiotics um under the right feeding regime are they even necessary because i know that's a that's a new thing that um you know was talked about by some people
2: yeah so there is unquestionably gut microbiome in your dog that is impacted by what it eats and there are things your dog can eat that will. Uh, everything your dog does eat will change that gut microbiome. And so, how that's and you're talking about I don't know enough about this to give you like, but you're like you're talking about something on the order of like tens of thousands of different species of like micro organism living in there in different. And so, like what the animal eats changes that stuff dramatically. So that's unquestionably real. And over the course of the next, I don't know, century, if folks keep studying science, like the nutritional science pertaining to dogs and cats, you're going to see very interesting stuff develop at present. That stuff's not there. So the express, like the, the term probiotic is not meaningful enough uh, to like, no way that may- it's not regulated significantly. That stuff is uh snake oil and it's present. Present, I would say my assessment of that there's no. I am hundred percent confident that nobody's got a study that says our product tends to change the gut microbiome in this way. And that tends to lead to health outcome in that way in the world of dogs and cats, not the so everything that's like that, it's tying into a scientific domain. There's unquestionably ripe for study. And it's, we're not talking about somebody, you know, making as a spirit world, this is the real world where there's this gut microbiome is a thing. But the idea that there's like we know enough about it at this point that it's you can commercialize it into a product put that out better for the dog in some way that's not a thing i wouldn't spend your money on that if i was you okay
0: well we're yeah we're,
2: we're just about out of time it's the best way for listeners to get get your food where do they go keto is the way the best way because there you can get all kinds of interesting stuff to read if this is if you're listening at this point point in a 45 minutes into a pe- podcast about dog food then you should go to the website because you're going to find a lot of interesting reading material there. We just do like our, a nice job of summarizing the evidence on all the relevant stuff there and you can, whatever media format you like, but you can also get the pet food. Uh, you can get our pet in all the major online outlets. Easily oh, nice. to find
0: okay. wherever you... All right. So again, the name is
2: slowly, uh, the URL is what? It's CheetoNaturalPetFoods.com. If you nice. search keto Pet Food, you'll find us.
0: Well, Daniel, thanks so much for coming. Uh, it's been really great to talk to you. I appreciate all your wisdom disregard.
2: Thank you. It's my favorite thing. I love it. Yeah, thank you for having me. If you need anything else, if you ever got any questions, you're your daughter. You know how to find me. Excellent.
0: Magnesium is integral for 600-plus biochemical processes in the human body, and yet most people are deficient. Common signs of magnesium deficiency include fatigue, muscle weakness, stunted growth, poor immune function, poor concentration in memory, hormonal imbalances, bone and teeth problems, Most people think grabbing a bottle of whatever cheap stuff on the shelf or at the top of Amazon will solve this. The common misconception is that consuming more magnesium will automatically improve health and well-being. The truth is there are various forms of magnesium, each of which is essential for a variety of physiological processes. Most people are deficient in all forms of magnesium, while even those considered healthy typically only ingest one or two kinds. Consuming all seven of magnesium's primary forms is the key to accessing all of its health benefits. That's why we pack seven forms of 450 milligrams of elemental magnesium into each serving of Wild Mag Complex. One dose a day is all you need. Learn more and grab a bottle today at wildfoods.co. Use code genius for 10% off your order.
1: If you like this podcast,